At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I'll say it right now. I grew up in a broken home. Dad drank. Mom drank. That might be why I've never touched a drop. But I'm getting on a tangent here. Most of you already know where this story is going. Dad used to get drunk and blame Mom and I for all of his problems. Mom used to lock me in my room. I'd say more often than not, my mother's screams and my own sobs were what rocked me to sleep. Then my mom started drinking and became numb to the whole thing. First Dad kept hitting her and left me to cry in my room. I guess he got bored eventually. Three days after my fifth birthday, Dad came up to my room for the first time. He had never done that before. Mom had stopped him. He broke my nose that first night. We went to the hospital and I told the doctor I fell down the stairs. He seemed to believe me. It was clockwork after that. Monday's dad worked late and we rested. Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, he was at the bar until well after my bedtime. Wednesdays were the worst. Fridays were normally insults, an occasional slap. Weekends, he drank himself to sleep around four in the afternoon. But Wednesdays, he'd come up to my room and do his business. If I blocked a door, it was a dozen rounds with a belt. If I cried, it was a slap for every tear. But if I was quiet, I'd let his knuckles crack against my jaw and let him pull my short hair. I'd never have to make up stories at school. I was an adventurous boy, and no one looked twice when my hands were scraped or if I had a bruise on my cheek. I lived for two years fearing that one night my dad would hit me too hard and I'd end up with the angels. Death scared me. One Wednesday, I was sitting in the corner when I saw him, a tall man in my corner. At first, I thought it was a woman. It looked like a black dress fell from a black face. I realized after a moment that it was a robe, a cloak, but I learned that word years later. I knew what I was looking at. I'd watch TV. I'd read books. I knew what death was supposed to look like. But I couldn't cry. Dad would have come in. I'd get the belt and the death would take me away. But for all the pain of my life, I knew that I wanted to live. That night, I fell asleep on the floor, 
huddled in a corner of my room with a halo of moonlight coming from the window resting around my feet. Death simply stood in the darkest corner of my room, behind a door leading to the hall. He was there every bad night after. Always Wednesdays. Some Fridays when my dad was in his worst moods. Every night he got closer. After two months, he would sit on a toy box at the end of my bed, sitting with his back against the wall, turned sideways so I always caught the profile of a shadowy hood. Why are you here? I asked him one night. He stared at me from the toy box, knees pressed against his chest, and arms curled around his shins. Almost a fetal position, though there was no fear in the position, just boredom. To watch, he told me. I swallowed at those first words. I'd expected a quiet rasp like on TV. Death's voice was something more. It was a burly man's confident and strong voice. It was a caring mother's nurturing tone, a madman laugh, and a child's giggle. It disturbed me and comforted me. To watch what? I asked. He simply looked at me. I saw his eyes for the first time that night. I had always expected Solus Pit there. Instead, I found blue warps and a bleached skull. Those orbs held galaxies, eternal and non-existent. Everything and nothing lived in the shadows of his cloak. Those contradictions comforted me. Over you, child, Death responded. I thought he lied to me and I grew upset. I asked why he never stopped my father. It's not my place to intervene, he told me. I asked him what he meant. He told me that he couldn't stop my father if he had tried. He simply was there to guide me if my nightmare ever came true. After that night, death was more of a father to me in a way my own never was. The next week, he brought a thick leather-bound book. Within were fairy tales, dark and light themes in countless languages. He told me stories in a voice of my grandmother, who died when I was four. When I got older, he stopped bringing the book. We stayed up until the crack of dawn talking. I asked him about the afterlife and why things were the way they were. He always answered vaguely, telling me that I'd understand one day. He stayed with me and comforted me until dawn peeked over my neighbor's roof. Then the sunlight would touch his black robe, turning it into a blinding white. Then he was gone. He'd be back next week, and I'd get ready for school. I never got tired when death spoke to me. Life went on. When I was 12, my doctor fixed my nose for the third time and started asking questions. Within three weeks, I was taken away from that home and put into an orphanage. In a Hollywood moment, my family doctor who had heard about what had happened from a friend at the hospital adopted me. He and his wife had been trying for a child for years, but they never could have one. I lived a happy life after that. I never did forget about what happened to me in my youth, though. I followed in my father's footsteps and became a physician.
Sadly, jobs were tight and I had to take a role in the morgue. All those years around death helped me work my new job, and I enjoyed it. My heart broke when my mother was in an accident. I was the one who put the tag on her toe. I had to take the rest of the week off, but death was there that day. He stood in the corner of the storage room when I closed the drawer. Holding his skeletal hand was a little girl with green eyes and chocolate hair. I had seen my mother's family pictures, and I knew this was her, around seven years old. It hurt me, but Death nodded to me, and I knew that he would take care of her. In my lifetime, I closed a drawer on four different parents. Dad drove into a storefront while driving drunk. I had to leave the room when they willed him in. I would have spat on his cold husk of a body if I didn't. Mom drank herself into her early grave a year later. I pitied her when I closed the drawer. He had broken her soul and she died in pain. I still remember the screams when Death dragged my father through the floor. A red hot chain and a metal collar strapped around his neck. My father, the man that saved my life, died four years ago. He went quietly in his sleep. I volunteered to close the drawer on him. When I did, Death arrived and took a little boy with dark hair and blue eyes. You may wonder why I'm writing this. In truth, I'm not quite sure myself. I guess I want to tell people not to fear death. He's a gentle being with a crappy job, and he saved my life. With the life he gave me, I've married, I've raised three children, two girls and a boy who look just like their mother. I have nine grandchildren and two great-grandchildren with a third one on the way. I lost my wife last year to a heart attack. It hurts me to think about it, but I know she didn't fear death. She knew my story, the one I'm telling you now, and she went in her sleep holding my hand. As I write these final thoughts, I look to my window. Out there I see a figure in the street, snow blowing white on black robes. A moment ago, I opened the window and invited him in. When you live as long as I have, you learn to treat a guest right. Now he's standing in a corner, patient as the day I met him. When I'm done with this post, I'm going to turn off my laptop, put the little girl he brought with him into my lap, and close my eyes. My wife will close her brilliant blue eyes and rest her crimson locks on my chin. I'll take one breath and fall asleep. When I wake up, I'll be with my family. I'll see my mother and father again. I'll see my mom happier than she was in life. I'll see the four dogs I've had in my lifetime too, hopefully. More to more, death calls from the corner. I sign type faster. If I can say one last thing, I'd like to quote Blue Oyster Colt. Don't fear the reaper. Because after all, people are the real monsters. During the fall, some friends and I grew quite bored of just sitting in our dorm rooms. 
being the only one with a car on campus, I was usually the one the plans derived from. Not too far from the campus was an old abandoned mental hospital that had closed around the 1980s. I've been before, and it was nothing really special. Your occasional slamming door and asbestos-filled rooms. On this particular night, we all decided to head back to the hospital to see if anything was left unexplored. In the car was my friend Michael, Alex, and my sister Haley. We were your typical rule breakers, thinking crawling under a metal fence labeled no trespassing was badass. When we arrived, we made sure to park far in the back parking lot and check the charge on our phones. As we were driving in, Michael pointed out a building that we have not been in yet. It was blockaded in by a 12-foot fence, so we assumed that was probably why. For some reason, that night felt like a good night to be a little riskier. Making our way under a foot of a gap under the fence, we scanned the area for an entrance, finding one almost immediately, and we continued on our adventure. This building was just like the rest. Long-hanging ceilings, damp rotting paperwork all over the ground. The only difference was that the way we entered was through the basement rather than the first floor. 45 minutes had passed and everyone was starting to grow a little more confident, knowing that no danger lurked behind these metal doors. Coming up to the final floor, there was a small hallway with a door that seemed to be slightly cracked open. We made our way to this enormous door and pushed it open, propping it with a chair. Michael was the first of us to ascend up the stairs, the rest of us falling closely behind. There were about ten stairs, then a platform, a turn, then ten more. But in the middle of the second set of stairs was a statue. This statue was very out of place and very unsettling to look at. It stood about four feet tall and held its hands in a praying manner. It was something that should not be in the attic of an old mental hospital. As we all shuffled by the silent statue, we were careful not to disturb it, because there was an undertone of fear within us all. Reaching the top of the stairs was when the thought of leaving was agreed. There before us was fifty to sixty religious statues, all standing about three to four feet tall and in some way looking directly at us. Michael, being the bravest one of us all, was the first to take a step into this uncharted territory, as far as we knew. As our iPhone flashlights followed his path, we noticed where he was heading. In the far left corner of the attic was a couch. On this couch were blankets, clothes, and water bottles. Around the couch on the floor were beer bottles, food wrappers, and something that was definitely not supposed to be there. Children's clothes. Spotting a newspaper, Michael picked it up and read the date out loud. November 23rd, 2015. Silence was among us. We all made adjustments to face the stairs and headed out of this place, because the date was December 2nd, 2015. Making our way once again past the praying man on the stairs, we headed for the propped open door. As we were about to leave, 
we were stopped in our tracks. There was a sound coming from above us. At first I couldn't make it out, but then I quickly noticed that it was the sound of someone walking. This person didn't seem to be just walking, but stomping with every stride. The sounds grew closer and stopped as soon as it hit the top of the second set of stairs. It almost seemed as though whoever this person was, was contemplating their next move. We didn't give them that time, and booked it all the way to the basement where we came in. From the time that I was in that attic, I didn't notice anywhere there could be a place to hide. For the most part, everything was pretty visible and in the open. The creepiest part to me is that we were in that attic for 10 minutes. It makes you think that maybe the crazies are closer than we think. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And just when I thought my life was getting back to normal, Trish and I got married in January this year. We moved into our own place not too long ago. Life seemed to start becoming the way it always should have been. But no, it would be too crazy to live a normal fucking life. When we moved in, we introduced ourselves to most of our neighbors. We live in an apartment complex that consists of two buildings across from each other. View from our bedroom looks at the other building, but hey, the place was cheap and in a good location so we couldn't complain. We hit it off with two of our neighbors right away, Jeff and Rachel. They're a bit older, probably mid-30s, but chemistry was there so that's all that mattered. I actually believe that Jeff and Rachel were a couple because they were always together. But later, I learned that they were just neighbors living above each other in a building across from ours. Enough bullshitting. Let me get to the point. I bought a pair of new Beats by Dre wireless headphones on eBay, and I got exactly what I deserved. I got a fake pair. I started the process of complaint with eBay, but I knew that shit wouldn't work. The thing is, as fake as they were, headphones actually sounded good. So I took them to work out at the gym that was on the first floor of my building. I was running on a treadmill and the phones were doing pretty well. And just as I started thinking that maybe these counterfeits aren't that bad, the left ear cup started producing crackling noise. I ignored it and kept running. Then... A loud bang came from both of the cups, and I nearly tripped on the machine. I stopped. 
Silence completely overtook the headphones. Then I heard silent crackling and what seemed like whispers. I knocked on the plastic cups, hoping that it fixed them. It did. Whispers now became clear talking. Well, they said it was him, so it must be him. A male voice said. It sounded familiar. Alright, well let's keep calm until we actually know for sure. Responded a female voice. I recognized that voice. It was Rachel. And the male sounded a lot like Jeff. Then a crackling noise got loud again, reaching unbearable pitch. As I was about to take the headphones off, the music started playing again. I didn't think twice about this event. I mean, why would I bother trying to understand how their conversation ended up in my headphones? Who gives a shit? I was just pissed that my fake beats were acting up. Jeff came over the next day. He is an electrician and I asked him to help me install a pair of those clapping lights. I guess I watched too many movies and I really wanted to be able to just clap for the damn light to come on. I found a good deal and bought a few, so Jeff was helping me install them. He did it for free. Since eBay hadn't done anything regarding my issue, I decided to keep the headphones. Seller wouldn't give me a refund, and they sounded alright, so I sucked it up. So two days ago, I was relaxing at the balcony drinking some Stella and listening to Kanye's new album. I mean, I was sunbathing and listening to my favorite artist while drinking my favorite beer. Life was damn near perfect. Then, the same crackling noise started. At first it didn't bother me, but it got louder and louder it finally got really loud and then it all stopped whispers came through the headphones again i turned up the volume to the max we're gonna have to approach trish first a million fucking goosebumps ran all over my body if i learned anything from my encounters with rose it was that coincidences don't exist in my life the voice saying my wife's name belonged to rachel there was no doubt. I stood up in my chair and looked to the building across, but I couldn't see into Rachel's apartment. She had blinds on. Come to think of it, she and Jeff always had their blinds on and were never on the balcony. At least four days. That's what we have to wait. You heard him. And after that, <laughs> him. That was Jeff. I stood up and took my headphones off. I wanted to run over to his place and ask what the hell was going on. I just stood there for a minute, trying to think. I put the beats back on my head, but at that point, the music was back on. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't mind the first interference, but this one? This one was about my wife, and how in the world was I able to hear them talk? I assumed it was some kind of radio interference. I decided to talk to Jeff about it. I texted him and asked what he was doing. After no text for a few minutes, I went back to drinking. Two hours later, I was still sitting on the balcony without a response from Jeff. Finally, around 9pm, 
I saw Jeff walk out of his building. As soon as he got out, I yelled, Hey man, you get my text? Nah, sorry. Left the phone at work. What's up? Lights working okay? Lights are fine, thanks. I was gonna ask you, do you and Rach talk over a radio or something? I swear to God, the man just stopped in his tracks. He was looking up at me, but he wasn't moving. After about a minute or so of silence, he responded, Nah, man, why? Where'd you get that from? He smiled at me, but it seemed forced. Shit, man. No idea. Must be the Stella. I said, also forcibly smiling while raising my empty beer bottle. He laughed at my joke and yelled a quick, Talk to you later, and went back in. I thought that whole encounter was strange. Shit whole damn day was strange as hell but I wasn't thinking too much about it I was decently buzzed and pretty tired so I just decided to go to sleep Trish was already sleeping at around 2 to 3 a.m. some kind of noise woke me up I am a light sleeper and even little things get me but this sounded pretty loud I sobered up enough to realize that the sound was coming from the headphones it was that same crackling that got louder and louder. Finally, it went away and silence took over. I turned the volume all the way up, trying to hear anything. These damn things are so loud, they sound more like a boombox than headphones. But I still couldn't hear anything. Then, a loud clap came from my fake beats. The light in our bedroom turned on instantly. I was still a bit sleepy, so it took me a second to comprehend what the fuck was happening. The clap activated the light. Who the fuck? Then it came to me. I walked over to our window, and that's where I nearly fucking screamed. The building across the street had all lights off. All but two. Jeff was standing at the window in his apartment, and Rachel was standing at the window in the apartment above. They were both looking straight at me. Jeff was holding something that looked like a radio. He brought it to his mouth. Crackling came from the headphones again. Yup, is all he said. As he said it, the lights turned off in both of their apartments, and I couldn't see anything anymore. My headphones went silent. If this is a prank they're pulling on me, it's a good one. If it's not a prank, well, here we go again. When I was a sophomore in college, I lived in a small but beautiful historic studio apartment in a small east coast city that had somewhat of a reputation for crime or danger. However, the neighborhood I lived in was usually considered one of the good neighborhoods. It was close to the city's university, and was mostly students living there, especially on the street my building was on. My building was a huge four-story townhouse, if you can really call it that. It was really a mansion as a whole, built in 1895. The architecture was really awesome. Built-in bookshelves and huge mahogany pocket doors that slid into the walls. Anyway, the building wasn't exactly in mint condition, and my landlord was pretty lazy. 
he would always come by and check up on things and make promises to get stuff fixed, but never really got around to doing much of anything. The apartment I was renting was on the first floor, my front door immediately on the left as you walked in the building's door to the street. This door, the building's front door, which from the street opened to a small lobby area with only one door in it, mine, and a staircase to the other apartments upstairs, was huge and heavy and was never locked. In fact, you couldn't lock it, and in fact, it didn't even close all the way. So basically, the door to my apartment was open to the street. I had asked my landlord countless times to please do something about the front door, but he never bothered to do anything. Well, one night, I was getting home from work, and it was very late, about 3.45 a.m. I worked as a pizza delivery driver at a place that was open really late every night, and I was just sitting on my couch, watching a little TV before I went to bed. I had also gotten totally naked, something I truly loved being able to do considering I lived alone. Anyway, not ten minutes since I'd gotten home and sat down, I hear these three slow knocks at my door. I'm thinking, who the fuck would be at my door at this hour? What could they possibly want? Why didn't I hear the building's front door open like I normally do? Young and naive, I was half scared and half intrigued. I put a robe on and slowly crept towards the door, which, by the way, was literally right next to the couch where I was sitting. At this point in time, my door didn't have a peephole, so I just kind of had to take a leap of faith and open the door. When I did, a tall, emaciated, middle-aged man stood staring down at me, with low eyes and a grin. He was wearing all black, many layers, and had a big black trench coat. The first thing he said was, Can I come in? With the door barely open, I got a deep pit in my stomach, and just went, Uh, no man, what's up? He just stared into my eyes for a second, clearly disappointed, and then said, I've seen you around, and started to grin again. The pit in my stomach had evolved into a churning sensation, and I was starting to get a little nauseous. Yeah, I've been watching you, and I like the way you look, he said. So, you gay? Bisexual? I was just like, I don't know, but it's late, and I'm going to bed, so bye. He kind of nodded and lingered for a second, as did I, watching to make sure I saw him leave the building. Once he did, I closed the door, locked it, and stood with my hands still on the knob for a good minute at least. After I snapped out of my shock, I ran over to my couch and pushed it up against the door. I ended up sleeping on the couch that night, even though it was right there. It just made me feel safer, like I could hear if something happened. Well, nothing happened that night. It wasn't until about a week later, on one of my nights off from work. I was sitting around my apartment, winding down by myself after I had some friends over drinking and smoking a little. All of a sudden, I heard a weird rattling noise coming from across the room, so I turned off the music I was playing to find out that it was coming from none other than my front door knob. 
I looked at it for a second and saw that both the knob and the top lock were jiggling. Someone was trying to get in. Like a deer in the headlights, I was frozen, staring at the thing's wiggle and shake until I started to see the top lock actually bulge and start to turn. I leapt up from my chair and soared to the door, grabbing tightly on the lock and forcefully twisting it back to being locked. The jiggling of the lock and knob stopped for a second, because whoever it was clearly knew that now I knew. It was only a second though, before they just started struggling again, and I had to use all my might to keep it still. Sweat was dripping down my forehead and my ribcage, and after about 15 seconds of wrestling with this intruder, it suddenly stopped, and I heard the building door open and close, and footsteps run down the stairs of the stoop to the sidewalk. And just like I was before, I was paralyzed, with my hands at the door for a good while before I realized I was crying and shaking, and that I needed to call someone. My instinct was to call the police. In hindsight, I regret this for the following reasons. I was basically having a panic attack while I was on the phone with 911, and actually threw up during the call. And I think that's when they decided I was just fucked up or something. When the two police got to my apartment, they stood in my doorway as I struggled to recount to them what had happened, as I'm shaking and crying. I notice at one point they're both smirking and laughing, and I say, what's so funny right now? One of them goes, it reeks of marijuana. I was just like, uh, okay, and basically argued with them after that. Long story short, they ended up confiscating a bunch of shit from my apartment, and basically turned the whole situation into a little mini drug bust, although they said they weren't going to charge me with anything. Just take my shit. Nothing about this attempted break-in besides keep your door locked. I was devastated and felt so helpless. I hate to make this story so long, so I'll try to keep the last part short. Basically, this same scenario happened one more time, about two weeks from the last time. Only instead of calling the police, I called my dad who raced down in an hour, two-hour drive from his house to this place, with a crowbar up his sleeve. Unfortunately, by the time he had gotten there, whoever it was had already left. My dad ended up cussing out my landlord and demanding he get the door fixed and install a new lock and a peephole on my door. He did make this happen within a reasonable amount of time, and I also got one of those bars you wedge between the doorknob and the floor. I also got an aluminum baseball bat to protect myself with, so I felt a lot better from then on. Needless to say, though, I ended my lease for that apartment a month early and never moved back to that street. I never found out for sure who was trying to pick my locks and if it was the guy who had come to my door the first time, but whoever it was, let's not meet. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.